Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to follow stars and dreams. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Epiphany officially happens on the 13th day following Christmas. Uh, the 12 days of Christmas officially over. The Magi arrive, deliver their gifts, uh, worship the baby Jesus, and head home by another route, never to be heard from again. If we didn't have all of our magic devices that can make light whenever we want them to, or if we lived on the mainland where it is still dark much of the day, much more so, by the way, when the snow and ice are falling from the sky, this time of year would be precious. Because each day when we woke up, there would be just a little more light. The darkness would no longer be winning. Remember St. John's words on Christmas Eve? We stood there with our little candle and he said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. And our paraphrased prayer was, and the darkness will never overcome us. Please, Jesus. Amen. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. Oh, fear might manifest itself in hate, but there are a hundred other ways for fear to manifest itself. There's that passage from Matthew where it says, When Herod heard about the birth of Jesus, you know, the one that was born the king of the Jews, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I would not have wanted to have been in the palace in those days. Jealousy, anger, rage, pain. Herod flailing at the night, screaming for more power and more time. And the city of Jerusalem, and especially the families of the little boys surrounding Bethlehem, paying the price. If Herod was afraid, then everyone was going to be afraid with him. That's what fear does. Now, fear may disguise itself as greed, hate, isolation, addiction, anger, I, the list really is endless. But in the end, fear is the root of all of it. And by the way, when you are afraid, you tend to inflict all of those things that you're feeling on the people around you. So what are you afraid of? What has the media or the world made you afraid of? What things run through your head at 2 a.m.? Um, what things, by the way, do the monkeys chatter about when you sit down for the first time all day and, and you have just a moment to think? And how do you deal with your fear? I mean, every one of us is different, um, but we all need to deal with our fears. And we can't just ignore it, nor can we pretend that we're not afraid. We do need to come up with ways to handle, to deal with fear. So Herod is a minor character in our Christmas story. Oh, he would hate hearing that. And by the way, if he were alive today, trust me, he would want to do something very mean and nasty to me just because I said it. But he really is only a minor character. And the truth is, Jesus is the only major character. Everyone else, including us, is just a minor character. Even that Bethlehem innkeeper who is nowhere in the Bible, but who gets, you know, maligned every time we have a Christmas pageant. You know, the Bible may not talk about him, but we know that he existed, or she existed, because someone had to hang out the no vacancy sign. Now, the story is told in such a way so we all can see how the various individuals and the groups react and respond to this baby who was born king of the Jews. And we're allowed to see each other's reactions and responses, and hopefully learn from them. For four weeks before Christmas, we saw how Mary and Joseph responded to the news. And I don't want to push this too far, but remember what happens to women who are not faithful in the eyes of the righteous. 
And Joseph could have had his whole reputation ruined. And then there are the families who would have to and perhaps did choose between their children and God and the church and their reputation. Mary and Joseph are very different than Herod. Oh, they were afraid. They had to be, given everything that was happening to and around them. But they chose to put their lives and their future in God's hands. And that's not an easy choice. Now, this moment is an epiphany. In fact, every single moment of our lives is an epiphany. If we are willing to open our eyes, our hearts, and our souls. You see, epiphanies are when we are able to celebrate God making the invisible visible, the unknown known, the the overlooked seen. It's tripping over the cord that you have stepped over a thousand times um, to the point where you forgot it was there. But in that one instant where you forgot you had forgotten, the cord reminded you it was there by sending you flying. And, and when you finally were able to look up and look back at, at that cord and all the stuff laying on the floor when it pulled it all off the tables, you asked yourself, why didn't I remember? And then you promised to remember. And you will remember, well, at least a thousand times until you forget again. So time for a Latin lesson. Professors love to use the term missio dei. Missio is just Latin for mission, and dei is, of course, for God. So it's the mission of God. They love to use the Latin because it makes them sound a lot smarter. If I were to ask you what the mission of God is, what would you say? What's the single primary thing that God is working to accomplish? It's really not an easy question. It's like that, which came first, the chicken or the egg thing? Because every time you think you've got an answer, you you get trapped in circular logic because the two are so dependent upon each other. This question is important because it defines how we as individuals, as a church and as a community, choose to live. We will respond to our fears based upon how we view God's work in the universe, God's work in our community, God's work in our church, God's work in us individuals. If we think God is out to punish us, then then we're going to live in fear and our lives are going to show it. If we think that God just created everything, you know, just wound up the clock and then abandoned us and forgot about us, then we're going to live in uncertainty. If we think that God loves us, we're going to strive to love Him back. You see how this works? How we view God and His work determines how we're going to respond to fear. And how we respond to God flavors how we live and respond to one another. Now, the most epiphany-ish thing ever was the birth of Jesus. Last week's epistle from Galatians, Paul said, In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those, meaning us, who are under the crushing weight of the law. If you add John 3.16, Colossians 1.16, and dozens of other passages, you begin to see a pattern. It it turns out that God's mission is you. Um, He created you. He loves you. He wants to spend eternity with you. But since we often have other more important things on our agenda, or we get lost, or we go prodigal, or we're just lazy, God actively has to come to save us over and over and over again, sometimes more spectacularly than, than others. In our gospel, a group of magi from somewhere east of Jerusalem witness a celestial event, and then they follow that star because all of their knowledge, all of their history, all of everything that that they are as magi 
well, it taught them that it would lead them to a child who was born king of the Jews. Now, what exactly that meant to them, we don't know. How they made the connection between this particular celestial event and the birth of the Messiah, something else that we don't really know. I, I mean, it could have been handed down from Daniel, who became the chief of the Magi back during the Babylonian captivity. Or God may have placed it on their hearts. And what they expected to see other than a baby who was worthy of their worship, Matthew doesn't tell us. The only thing he really notes is that they go to see this baby who is worthy of their worship. Now, they were following the star across the desert, but then something happens. Now, instead of going straight to Bethlehem, which we assume the star is shining over, they go to Jerusalem, where the pretend king of the Jews is busily ensconced in his palace, terrifying people. Uh, we don't know if the star disappeared temporarily or, or if it was blazing brightly in the sky, but they ignored it because they just assumed that any king that was going to get born was going to get born in the palace, and everybody knows the palace is in Jerusalem. Yeah, we just know they took a detour through Jerusalem, and it had tragic consequences. They begin inquiring about the baby, probably surprised that nobody else seems to know anything about it. Uh, then comes the secret summons from the king, who claims to be eagerly awaiting to go and worship this child, but he's busy right now. So you go and worship him and then come right back, tell me where I can find him, and then I'll roll out the red carpet. And they take off again, and why Herod didn't send soldiers or priests or a janitor to accompany him, I'm not really sure. Maybe he was hoping to pin the whole thing, the, the whole death of a baby king on those foreigners. You, you know, those wise men that came, and maybe he was even trying to start a war. Regardless, the Magi go on alone with just their camels and gifts. And Matthew clearly says the star is right there, willing and able to guide them right to where they can find the one who is born king of the Jews. If we pause for a second, there are a couple of things here that would be important for us to see. First, it teaches us we need to look for the light of Christ under the star, not in the kingly or queenly halls of power. In our world today, it means we are most likely to find Jesus exactly where Jesus said we would find him, and that's among the faithful, among the poor, the humble, the needy, not necessarily giant cathedrals or expensive attractions that have his name and lights. Second, if the Magi had asked any priest or, or faithful church member or even just said, hey, could we borrow an Old Testament for a few minutes, they could have avoided the whole mess with King Herod because it was all very clear where this king was going to be born. God had always been very good at letting his people know where to look for him. And this one was no exception right there in Micah. Perhaps most important, close wasn't good enough for them. The Magi were only about five miles away from their destination when they stopped in Jerusalem. Just five miles. By the way, have you ever played the game, how many states have you been to? Um, because the first thing you have to ask is, what qualifies for having been to a state? Is it enough to transit through the airport? Do you have to eat or sleep there? What if you just drive through a tiny corner? Or like the Four Corners area of Colorado, where you can stand on a plaque and technically be in four states at, at the same time, does, does that actually qualify? This actually helps us understand more about the Magi. If it was just a symbolic visit, if this was just a, hey, you know, that star showed up, uh, we probably should go and throw some gifts at this baby, and then we got to get home because, you know, the, the work's going to pile up. 
They could have just dropped the gifts with King Herod, picked up a few souvenirs, and headed home. But close wasn't good enough. Just so you know, by the way, if you want to go see where the baby Jesus was born, it's $99 for a guided bus tour that leaves at 1230 and returns to uh, Jerusalem at 530. Or uh, for just five bucks, you can take the city bus, which runs several times every hour. But here's what I'm going to ask you, though. If you were to take one of those tours or, or take the city bus or maybe even rent a car or a motorcycle or walk, your, your choice, how long would you have to spend in Bethlehem for you to be able to say, I've been to Bethlehem. And, and would you wait in the very long lines in order to duck underneath and actually go into the church of the Holy Nativity and, and see the star on the floor where they say the baby Jesus was born? Would be enough to stand outside the gates and, or, or maybe just take a picture from your bus window as you drive by. You know, there are a lot of people who got close at Christmas. They might have even checked the God box off because they made it to one of the church services. But how close is close enough? And what do we make of the Magi taking off immediately after they drop their gifts and, and worship the baby Jesus? What are we supposed to learn from that? I mean, did they go home and start a church? Did they wait for the baby Jesus to grow up? Did they forget all about him? Did they, like Mary, treasure all these things up in their heart? And if they did, what does that mean? What is this whole thing about? See, if we doubted that God was somehow involved in their journey, the next verses become very important. As they are leaving, no doubt heading back to Jerusalem to let King Herod know where he could go and find the baby Jesus, um, they're warned in a dream to go home another way, and they do. They, they evidently were okay with following dreams as well as stars. We talked about what happens next last week. Remember I told you that whole Star Wars analogy where you watch uh, episode four in 1978, and then you have to wait almost like 20 years before you see episode three? If you weren't able to be with us, old King Herod, in one of his final acts before he dies, is so angry that the Magi don't come back he is so afraid of everything that, that he has his soldiers go out and kill every baby boy that's two and under in the entire region around Bethlehem. How painful every breath, every word, every thought must have been for him. How afraid he must have been. And here is where we return to our story. Joseph also gets warned in a dream what Herod is planning. He grabs Mary, Jesus, and whatever they could carry, takes off in the middle of the night for Egypt, where for a while they become refugees. Same Egypt where their ancestors were enslaved. The same Egypt where so many of them died. The Egypt where their tears were so loud that God heard them and raised someone up to lead them out of slavery. Now, not only does this fulfill Hosea 11.1 1, that says, Out of Egypt I have called my son, my son. But the symbolism is so rich here. See, I need you to notice what happened. Jesus gets born, first of all. Nobody but the shepherds notice. They finally get moved into a house, and we don't know exactly how long they had planned on staying there. Anyway, then these wise men show up and drop off some gifts, and, and, and then the wise men leave, and then the dream happens, and Joseph says, we got to go, and, and he goes to Egypt. He doesn't go among family. He doesn't try to find some out-of-the-way town in, in Israel. He goes to Egypt the place that they had hated so much and that the stories they had passed down about how terrible life was there. 
You see, the new king that we have been waiting for, the, the, the Messiah who will save us and who has saved us, he chooses to be just like us. You see, a refugee in a world that is not his home, a world that is filled with pain and misery and hurt and anger and death and, and especially fear. And this is where God's grace shines from. God says he's not afraid of the darkness. He's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of any of those things that any of the Herods can dream up and, and, and try to force people to be afraid as well. See, out of a place that we would not imagine, out of the darkness and fear comes a light that will bring healing and love and forgiveness to all who are willing to see who this light really is. I know that personally we would have the baby Jesus uh, rise up and, and put on a cape and some tights and dethrone King Herod and, and maybe behead him like the next Herod will do to John the baptizer. Uh, we'd have Jesus chase the faithless priests out of the temple, punish those all-too-compliant soldiers who didn't, didn't even bother to question their orders, force those people of the world to join the Magi, bringing gifts and adoring the one who was born to be our king. See, we all love a good fairy tale ending, especially one that leads to a world and a life that we've designed for ourselves where we get to live happily ever after the way that we want to live. But instead, God teaches us something very different. He teaches us to laugh at the soldiers and the King Herods and those faithless priests. Play games with them. Ignore them. You see, God says all the things that we are afraid of, all the Herods of this world, all the things that cause us sleepless nights and anxiety-ridden days, God shows us that history and time will take care of all of them, just like it did old King Herod, who didn't even live to see his next birthday. See, all those fears that seem so powerful and so scary, God says if we wait in faith, and the key words are in faith, They'll become nothing more than a footnote in history that nobody ever bothers to read. Jesus came to release you from your fear, to bring light into your darkness, to restore your hope. Not through some superhero action movie stunts, but by him living a life that is so much like yours and mine, and yet so different because it is lived in and through faith that his very life and story continues to draw us closer and closer to the heart of God. You are the mission of God. You are the purpose of all that is in this universe. You are the reason God entered our world to perform the most sacred of rescue missions. To quote St. Paul in one of his more poetic moments, well, if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? In the book of Hebrews, it might say faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. But sometimes God gives us a star or a dream or a bunch of guys on camels or crazy gifts with the tags removed so we can't return them. And we realize that we have the courage to follow the light until it leads us to what we are looking for. The light shines. And the darkness is very much afraid. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.